Gospels to 1 John chapter 2. Our text will be from verses 1 to 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Having completed the first chapter of uh, John's first epistle, uh, we are here again presented with a purpose statement at the very start of the second chapter. If you will recall, the first chapter presents us with two purpose statements to explain John's intention for writing. We have in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And in verse 4 of the same chapter, These things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. And now, again in verse 1 of chapter 2, These things write I unto you, that ye sin not. So then we are provided with three purposes for writing from John. Apostolic fellowship, fullness of joy, and an aim to be without sin. All of which combine, of course, into an edifying whole. They work together. Firstly, the apostolic word, when received, actively joins one into fellowship with the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and His body, the Church. Secondly, it is life in communion with God, Christ and His Church, where there is fullness of joy and gladness to be experienced. Thirdly, life in this society of God, Christ, and the Church as it is on earth, is marked by an aim for sinless perfection after him whom the life has its source, God, as chapter 1, verse 5 will say, who is light in whom there is no darkness at all. The standard then is set. The Apostle John makes himself very clear on what is to be expected for those earthly, visible members of the society called the church. You who are called after the name of Christ... A Christian, your aim, per this chapter and verse, your aim is to reach perfection. The intent of the entire visible society of saints ought to be to attain sinlessness. These very saints we have heard described by the Apostle John as those who are pressing on to become all light in the Lord, to have no darkness within, like the God with whom they commune. 1 John Chapter 1, verse 5 to 6. Truth is the path which they walk along. Confession and repentance are common tools of their trade. Chapter 1, verse 9. The word of him who has called is in them, sanctifying them according to the truth and assuring them of attaining the end promised. It is as if the believer is put on one extremity of a field and the goalpost of perfection is on the other side to which they are to make continual forward progress, an enduring advancement, bridging that gap a little bit here. Another measure there, as the Isaiah the prophet will say, line upon line, vigorously with desire, 
And as the Apostle Paul should say, reaching forth unto those things which are before, until they finally arrive at their death to the other end, to be perfected in soul and at the resurrection in whole. My little children, John says, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not, that ye not give way to sin, to the practice of it, to the giving oneself over to it. I would remind you of similar words to which our Savior once directed to a disabled man who had received healing at the pool of Bethesda. Our Lord Jesus tells him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Likewise to the woman supposedly caught in adultery. After her prosecutors depart, he says to her in John chapter 8, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Understand by this that the call and invitation to an active union and communion with Christ is simultaneously a demand of immediacy to radically break with and divorce sin. The standard and the goal, then, of the Christian community is sinless perfection. Progress towards that goal in this life is not impossible, even if the object aimed for in its entirety is not attained until the end. True and real advancement in holiness and the accompanied progress of putting to death of particular and personal sins, brothers and sisters, is part of the salvation package. And the end of it, which is perfection, sets the direction and orientation here, today, and now. John will even say in chapter 3 of this epistle that the hope of seeing Christ in the future and being made like him when we behold him directs us now in the present to purify ourselves even as Christ is pure. The end and the hope of what is to come determines, shapes, and defines the way there. Not simply tomorrow, but today, even now, congregation. The Apostle John would here implicitly rebuke hypocrites that are licentious, walking in darkness while professing to have fellowship with God who is light. Likewise, those who would be presumptuous concerning the promise of forgiveness and cleansing upon confession of their sins, treating the grace and the Spirit of God like a lever, something they may pull or turn, and out comes the desired product, forgiveness and cleansing on the other end. Additionally, he confutes those who pretend to have no sin, to act, to speak, and pretend as though they were already perfect and have no need of the apostolic writing that to sin not. However, in rebuking one end with such stark contrast, so as to warn the hardened sinner, others among the readership of John's letter with different needs are accidentally tempted thereby to despair, to throw in the towel, right? To lift up the hands and say, as it were, what's the use? How can I aim not to sin when sin seems to color and adhere to every action, every desire, each of my thoughts, all of my words, even when I attempt and desire and try to do what is good? As the psalmist says, my sin is always before me. I cannot seem to get away from the presence of my depravity. 
As the Apostle Paul should say, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? My little children, John says, to these very souls discouraged over the possibility of their own apostasy, he speaks to them endearingly as a father in the faith ready with gospel comfort for their insecurity and great motivation for onward Christian labor and obedience. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. That is, that ye give yourselves not over unto it. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Congregation, we have here in this comforting word of verse 1 through 2, three parts to which we will give the remainder of our attention. The first part concerns the offenders and how they are said to offend. The second, respecting the advocacy of Christ and the nature of it. And thirdly, regarding the qualifications and work of Christ touching this office of advocate. In the first place, then, we ask in relation to this text, who are these offenders and how do they offend? If any man sin, says the apostle. By any man, understand not uh, man as in male, but man as in those of mankind. So as to say, if anyone sin, we have an advocate. But who is this anyone that this comfort is intended for? Firstly, we understand it in direct relation to sinners, not sinning angels who have no scheme of redemption provided for them to be saved and are said to be reserved unto judgment, but rather for those sinning sons of Adam who have sinned in him and fallen with him. It is for these kinds and sorts of sinners that the remedy is proposed and devised. But that is not all. We need to identify whether that comfort granted an interest or share obtained in Christ's advocacy is said to be for all sinners, irrespective of their relation to God. And this appears to be excluded in the distinctions he has made up to this point in chapter 1, such as those who walk in the light as God is in the light versus those who walk in darkness and live a lie. Those whose sins are forgiven and cleansed on one side versus those who do not the truth and have not the saving word of God in them. If any man sin, uh, John will say, we, we have an advocate with the Father. Not every human person in the world has an advocate or every sinner universally, but we have an advocate. Consider with me for a moment whether it would be a comfort to the near despairing believer. They are weary who is concerned over the steadiness of their own soul as a result of their stumbling into various sins, whether it should be a comfort to them to know that every single sinner on this earth has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I ask you, what help can be gathered from such a doctrine? If countless of sinners who are said to have Christ as their advocate never turn to him, live like children of the devil on the earth. And even if they entertained a profession of Christ for a time, they fall away and make shipwreck of their faith. 
into complete apostasy. If all of these brothers and sisters and many more have Christ as their advocate, only for them to end up in hell with the condemnation of conscience, the law, the justice of God, and Satan to stand over them for all eternity, what comfort or relief could this knowledge bring? On the contrary, it is no comfort. It assures me nothing. Oh, perhaps under this scheme, Christ wishes me well and maybe puts in a good word for me. But his work has no guarantee to keep me, to sustain me, to grant me victory over sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil. It has no effectual power in of itself to get me to the desired end. Such a doctrine makes a mockery of Christ's intercession, a weak and impotent one at that. But thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, as the Apostle Paul should say, this is not reflective of Christ's office of intercession. Christ keeps those who are his sheep. None can pluck them out of my hands, nor my Father's hands, as he will say in John chapter 10. Likewise, speaking of his disciples to his Father in John chapter 17, he says, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost. Our text again says, and if any man sin, we have an advocate. Who, I ask you, does this advocacy apply but to those believers whom he is writing to, those whom he wishes to have fellowship with, to have their joy be made full, to whom he presses on towards perfection, to whom he includes himself among. So as to say, if any one of you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The comfort of what John writes then is intended for the sinning believer, for those who come to Christ. That said, the text says and assumes that they sin. And it is appropriate to ask what kind of sin is spoken of and attributed here to the believer as committing. Some in reading this have wrongly portrayed the apostle as though he proposed a remedy that the believer might never need to utilize. As though he said, if and only if one of you sin, then remember you have an advocate that's in place and you can contact him and he can take care of the problem which your sin created. In such a case, Christ's ministry of intercession is made similar to a get-out-of-jail-free card or some legal insurance, just in case the worst of things occurs and you just might need it, but it may never happen. You may never use it. Or maybe if you're thinking modestly, you'll need it occasionally or seasonally, once a month, maybe if things are really bad, daily. Oh, congregations, by no means, this is so far from the truth. Remember, the believer has sinned to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. On the contrary, in verse 8 of the same chapter, the hypocrites say they have no sin, and that they have not sinned, in verse 10. But by contrast, the believer, in verse 9, has sins to confess. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, but I write, John says, I write that you may not sin, that you may be perfect. But given that there is not a just man 
upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not, Ecclesiastes 7.20, we have Christ Jesus in heaven at the right hand of majesty taking up our case from which, brothers and sisters, be reminded of what you already know by experience, that believers in this life are not free. They are not free of all inner corruptions and sins of infirmity, though they be free from sin's dominion and its accompanying sentence of condemnation. Some groups, as I have mentioned already, have mistakenly concluded that since the renewed man is put in a position of being able to sin and not to sin, like Adam in the garden, that therefore the believer is brought to a garden-like estate, thereby negating the reality, the presence, and the blot of sin that remains within, complained of by the greatest and godliest of saints, from David to the Apostle Paul. No congregation, the saint still sins in his weakness. There still remains disorder within which they are tasked with God's help to mortify by the new principle of grace implanted in them. But that they should sin in this life is not so much a matter of if in the Wesleyan sense, but of when. And though their sin is not like the sin of unbelievers or the sin unto death or that against the Holy Spirit, it is still an offense, a transgression undercutting the communion which the believer has with God the Father in Christ. It is filth that still needs cleansing, fatherly forgiveness, the ongoing application of salvation to bring the believer eventually to be free of sin in its entirety. To this believer, troubled still with the corruption that remains within, is their need for an advocate at God's right hand. Christ's advocacy is for the believer, the believer who sins out of the indwelling corruption that yet remains. But is this to suggest then that the advocacy of Christ is more so to aid the weak Christian than it is for the strong in this life? No, again, not so. Notice what John says, we have an advocate. The Apostle John did not say, I have an advocate, as if to lift himself above the rest in sanctity where the rest are to obtain remedy for their condition by appeal through John to Christ setting up a hierarchical ministry of sanctification. Nor did he say, we have advocates, plural, with the Father, so as to encourage believers to make their appeal and bring their case to more holier saints or to patron saints who you identify with the most, seeking their blessing and assistance as Rome or the Eastern Orthodox would have us do, which is far from the apostolic word. But to this point, John says, we have an advocate. The Apostle John includes himself, a father in the faith, the apostle, the minister and teacher. He is one, too, who has a vital need for the intercession of Jesus Christ. And if apostles of Christ have need of the advocate's special help, them who are regarded in the scriptures as holy men of God... Congregation, certainly, we do need it as well. We all, ministers and members, rulers and ruled, officers, non-officers, old and young, men and boys, women and girls, we all together are herein directed to rest our confidence upon the help, upon the aid 
upon the advocacy and prayers of Jesus Christ the righteous. It is his intercession we must in the end find grace and peace in. So much then concerning the offenders, he says, if any man sins, we have an advocate. We turn our thoughts now to consider the advocacy of Christ. The word advocate, as it occurs in the original, may be familiar to some of you. Uh, it is the word paraclete, or uh, more correctly, parakletos, believed to be related to the word parakaleo. Uh, and I'll explain that. Uh, the first part, para, which means co- to come beside or alongside of. And the second half, kaleo, means to call. So, parakletos, being understood as derived from that combination, is one who is called to one side for aid. A paraclete is a helper of sorts. And depending on the context, the particular kind of help is clarified. To help round out our understanding of how Christ is our advocate, our paraclete, let me point you to three examples in the Gospel of John where the name of paraclete will explicitly be applied to the Holy Spirit and implicitly to Christ as the first. John 14, verse 16. Speaking of his soon departure to the Father, Jesus tells his disciples the following, And I will pray the Father that he shall give you another comforter, that's paraclete, that he may abide with you forever. Here we have a wonderful display of the redemptive economy of our triune God when the mediator Christ Jesus ascends to be at the Father's right hand. The Father will be prayed to by the Son. Christ the Son will pray unto the Father and the Spirit will be prayed for by the Son, that the Father, through Christ the Son, may give the Spirit unto his people. Jesus is here conveyed to us as the first paraclete, the first helper and comforter, of which the Father will give another, a second, to abide with them forever. The first paraclete and helper, the Son, goes unto the Father and prays unto him as part of his heavenly ministry, that the Father may give the second paraclete the Spirit to his people here on earth. Second example comes 10 verses later. John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Comforter, that is the Paraclete, the Comforter, forgive me, I misplaced my eyes, the Comforter, the Paraclete, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Here in John 14, 26, the Father will give the second paraclete, the Spirit, in the name of the first, that is, of Christ. Here we have again reiterated for us that the Spirit's mission is a result of Christ's heavenly mediation. And he comes in Christ's place and purpose to do his bidding among Christ's people. The second helper here, the Spirit, will bring to mind all that the first helper, Christ, taught, and said. To this end, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of His Son in Galatians 4.6 and the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1.19. He, this second helper and aid, comes applying and testifying of the work of the first helper, Jesus Christ, within. 
And a third and final example for our, uh, for our purposes comes one chapter later in chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus will refer to the second paraclete as the spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father. He shall testify of me. Congregation, I ask, do you desire truth? Here is the spirit of truth who testifies of Christ Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. You may receive of this truth in reading and studying the scriptures, right? Even as we're doing right now. For remember, the scriptures are the production of the Holy Spirit. Having moved his apostles to write of Christ, bringing to mind all that he said, and putting down in writing that which was necessary for our salvation and edification. But there is more. You must get a spiritual enlightening within of that external scriptural truth. The Spirit has testified externally in his word, but he must also open your eyes within to behold, to look upon the glory of Jesus Christ at the right hand of majesty for his saints and thereby, Christian, you may be changed into the same image from glory to glory. We have seen then in the broader context from these three examples of John's writings a brief way how the Christian believer on the earth has two paracletes, two advocates, two helpers. One in heaven, the Father's right hand, the Lord Jesus Christ interceding on their behalf, and another helper, the Holy Spirit, operating and working within the believer upon the earth. O believer, you have a supposed help like no other. Help in heaven and help here on earth from outside of you and inside of you, but not of yourself, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. The spirit of his son is said to be within to aid, to comfort, to convict, to assist, to urge, to prompt and apply And that is a testimony of the Father sending him in love according to the intercession and prayer of the God-man Jesus Christ in heaven for you. Is this your advocate? Are you one for whom he is interceding? Is it his spirit by which you walk and live? If any man sin, we have an advocate Here in our immediate context, we now turn from the broad to now the narrow and the immediate. The believer's sinful offense is brought before the Father. The Father is the offended party, and the advocate or paraclete is presented here as our legal advocate, our attorney, as it were, pleading our case with the Father. Here there is a relation of God the Father to the believer as a lawgiver even as a judge, with the intention that his law be obeyed. John himself will tell us in chapter 3 of this epistle that sin is the transgression of the law. But see to it in this very passage that the law does not hang over the believer. It's a covenant of condemnation. But rather the law is mediated to them through the hands of an advocate. That is, it directs them how to live. But it perfect keeping by them is not the condition by which 
They either attain or remain in that fellowship and communion. Perfect keeping of the law is attributed to the advocate, of which we shall hear more of shortly. Where? Where is this advocacy taking place? Well, in heaven, with the Father, as the, at the throne of God, as it were, where Christ has ascended and sits at the right hand of God, making up the ascended priestly work of Jesus in his exaltation. For Christ has not entered, the author of Hebrews will say, into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And as a result, the same author will say, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Believer, let us not contemplate Christ as though he were idle in heaven, having completed his work of humiliation with some exaltation from the earth, and now he just sits and waits to the end. No, Jesus Christ has not gone away as an absent-minded husband from his bride, but is there advocating for her with an unchangeable priesthood, appearing for us, interceding for us like the high priest of old, with the names of his people there upon his heart, presenting their names to God his Father as those for whom he intercedes. Seeing then that his intercession occurs today in heaven, it is appropriate to ask, what is it exactly that he is interceding for? In this regard, it is helpful to hear what our Lord prayed for and how he interceded for his people during the days of his humiliation. Doing so we may, may give us a good idea of what he prays for his people now. For our purposes, we'll just consider a few examples to help us get the broader picture. But I encourage you, later today, in your private time, in your meditations and conversations, consider additional places where Christ prays for his people. Our first example, we have mentioned already from John 14, where the mission of the Spirit among his people is said to be a fruit of his ascension and intercession. Something which Christ would pray to the Father once at his right hand to send. And this encompasses both that special objective outpouring upon his apostles starting at the day of Pentecost. And likewise the continual individual subjective pouring out of the Spirit upon his elect. Whereby they are renewed and enlightened, regenerated. And thereby cry out to God as their own Father. Other examples of Christ's prayer, John 14, 2-3, speaking to his disciples, Jesus will say, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Taking that into his prayer, three chapters later, he says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory. Christ's intercession today involves praying for his own, that they persevere to the end and be brought to him where he is, to be at home with the Lord. His bride is far from being forgotten. Rather, she is being assisted by her spouse where she most needs it. 
Along these lines, Christ prays in the same place. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from evil. Christ's prayer for his saints includes their ongoing perfection and their perseverance, not allowing them to be overwhelmed by evil, finally or fully. Additionally, he prays that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. And there are many more instances whereby we may attain a clearer picture of what our Lord's current intercession consists of, and I encourage you to make use of. That said, are we to conceive of his current intercessions and prayers exactly in the same fashion where they were formed in the days of his humiliation? On the earth, and the answer is no. Christ Jesus has been exalted no longer in the days of his humility, wherein he was said by the author of Hebrews to offer up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears. This was a unique feature of that estate. It says Hebrews 5.8, that though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Today, brothers and sisters, in his exaltation, there is no suffering, no crying, no weakness in that any way of the days of his humiliation in that sense. Ah, but where there is continuity, it is in the effectual nature of those prayers and an ever-living intercession Christ's prayers in heaven have an answer that is certain. And why is that? Well, that brings us back to the immediate text concerning the qualifications and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Little children, John says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The first item of note from our text is that Christ the Son is an advocate with the Father. He is advocate with his own natural father, and that for the believer. Hand selected, as it were, the father put forward the best kind of advocate, his son. Is there anyone else that you can think of in the scriptures with whom he expresses that he is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased? And yet the father spared him not, but delivered him up for us all. Out of love he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, have everlasting life. Jesus then is qualified to be the advocate, because hand selected by his own natural Father. Furthermore, Jesus is qualified to be this advocate to demonstrate the glory of God's special love in giving of his own natural son to mediate between him and his people. Consider also that as the natural son, Jesus Christ has the most intimate of knowledge of the offended party, his father. Face to face, as we heard earlier. No man hath seen God at any time, says the Apostle John, but the only begotten son, of, son which is in the bosom of the father. He hath declared him. That is, as the metaphor suggests, the Son, Jesus Christ, is alone 
in the Father's bosom as a man be with the closest person he has on this earth so as to know his secrets, to know his character, to know his purposes, his plans, his intentions, and more. Giving the Son the singular privilege and advantage of declaring him and making him known to his disciples, I and the Father are one, he says in John 10. And in John 14, if he had known me, you should have known my Father. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. What a comfort. What a comfort it is to know that the Father, who is the offended party, is the one to have initiated to put forward an advocate for the believer. And this advocate knows him. He understands him. He intercedes in the exact way that is called for and required by the Father and his law, and in such a way that is most needful by the sinning believer. Christ has qualified them for this office of advocacy because of his relation to the Father with whom we have to do. However, also in this relation, we must consider his qualification as it pertains to his incarnation, whereby we are here, uh, both God and man, right, in one person, and thereby is especially suited for this task of intercession. Well, how so? Well, that he is God, he gives him inestimable worth and efficacy, as our larger catechism will say, to his work and performances as a mediator, especially as an advocate and intercessor. That he is man, he is able to intercede for us as man, sharing our nature, who can, as Hebrews 4.15 says, be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In all points, tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Consider, congregation, that in Christ we have not a cold and indifferent advocate. He knows his clients well and cares for them deeply, so deeply that by this they are made family, that he is man and sharing in their nature or our nature, we may by him receive the spirit of adoption, access and a place in his house with great privileges as adopted children after Jesus himself the natural son, and that he is God and man, the two natures in one person, each contributing what is proper to each nature, to the one work of redemption and salvation in one mediator, he is made to us like that daysman spoken of by Job, and lays hands upon both God and man, and brings them together in reconciliation in that one Christ Jesus. His qualifications are not only in presented in that in relation to the Father, according to his incarnation, but also by his name and title. He is Jesus Christ. Jesus, meaning Jehovah, is salvation. You may recall in the Gospel of Matthew at the very beginning, where an angel instructed Joseph in a dream concerning the virgin conception. Of the, and the birth of Christ. The angel said concerning his name, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Know very well, congregation, and I trust that you do, that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. To him, it will say in Acts chapter 10, to him give all the prophets witness, and that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. 
Not only does his name tell us something of his qualification, but the title ascribed to him that becomes so closely aligned with his name, and that is that he is Christ, that meaning the anointed one. You will recall that anointing with oil, right, was that custom of old where the kings and priests were set apart and uh, put into their office to perform the functions that God had given to them. He is the anointed one in that first he is appointed and ordained by God the Father to his office, to his work of redemption and mediatorship between God and man. Christ takes his office of redeemer, mediator, and advocate up at the behest of his Father who tells him in Psalm 2-7, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And Psalm 110-4, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And unlike the types in the Old Testament which were anointed with oil, the kings and the priests with the sign, Christ was anointed with that fuller reality of that which was signified, and that is that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, filled with his gracious influence, with his grace, with his uh, virtues and gifts, so that the Apostle John will say that God giveth not the, the Spirit by measure unto him. In Christ, then, the fullness of all spiritual gifts, graces, and virtue have their source for his body, the church. It is out of his storehouse that he is able to give unto his church. The last item of qualification which begins to flow over into the category of the work of Christ is that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He is the righteous one. The believer's advocate is not only intimate with the father, the offended party, but he is also well acquainted with the law, which the offending believer has transgressed. Christ is not like the lawyers of this world, which need to be corrected by the judge on proper courtroom procedures, checked for possible conflict of interest, or as holding questionable interpretations of the law. No, he knows it well and has no need to be put in place to be corrected or to check his reading of it. He is the righteous one, greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than the temple, Lord even of the Sabbath. With him lies the right sense and true understanding of the law. The law is in his right hand as a son over the house that God put him in charge of. Not only so, but in this appellation of being the righteous one, we learn that in him is the means of giving righteousness to others. And that because he is altogether righteous, not only in that he correctly interprets the law, but also is its perfect observer. For as by one man's disobedience, the Apostle Paul will say, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, of one, and that is Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. Romans 5.19 His active obedience becomes that by which the believer is rendered righteous. He has no sin of his own to need offering and sacrifice for or sin to be put out before the judge in God's court. But he is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The believer's sins thereby are not imputed to them, but another's righteousness is. The law-keeping of Jesus Christ, the righteous is counted to them as their own. 
having noted then by way of qualification his righteousness in relation to his active obedience of the law, now we consider it in verse 2 related to his work, or what has been called his passive or penal obedience, whereby Jesus Christ provided satisfaction for divine justice. Verse 2 says, And he is the propitiation for our sins. Here, we are informed that the advocacy of Jesus Christ is entrenched in his past work of atonement. The word, the word propitiation in our text carries the idea of something that offers appeasement, expiation of some wrong done. The wrong done is our sin, our transgressions against God and his law. Justice and the law stood over the believer in condemnation requiring a punishment equal to the crime. Eternal punishment under God's vindicative justice. God will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 7, without some equal form of satisfaction. And that satisfaction is provided in Christ for our sins. As others before me have noted, we will note that Jesus Christ is not said to be the uh, propitiator, but the propitiation itself. He is not simply offered up an offering as the priest of old, just bringing another lamb or uh, another ram another offering, but he himself was the final and the full sacrifice and offering, the propitiation. And as it relates to Christ's heavenly advocacy, we observe how sacrifice and intercession come together in Christ's priestly ministry. They are not the same, but the first, that is propitiation or atonement, entails the second, advocacy or intercession. Christ's atonement secures his heavenly advocacy. His heavenly advocacy is the application of his atonement. Some, by way of illustration, have compared uh, the ever-living intercession of Christ to his uh, uh, atonement, similar to the way we think of providence and creation. Providence sustains the acts and effects of creation. The two, whether atonement and intercession, or creation and providence, are not to be confused but neither are they to be separated so as to render one of these as superfluous or unrelated as a needful. And all that to say that the believer is dependent upon Christ's priestly ministry, which includes both atonement, which is done. It's a, a done work, but continuing intercession, continuing application from the throne of God. The one is necessary to the other for Jesus Christ in heaven makes continual appeal to what? To his atoning blood. To the blood of sprinkling, as the author of Hebrews will say, that speaks better things than that of Abel's. His blood speaks. His blood is heard effectually by the Father for the covering of our own sins, as though God should say, the voice of thy brother's blood voice of thine advocate's blood cries unto me continually and what does this blood cry out forgive them cleanse them sanctify them as you know verse 2 continues it's a propitiation not only for our sins but also for the sins of the whole world 
Now there is on the surface of this text a broadening out right, of the propitiation of Christ from our sins to that of the whole world. As a result, some groups have taken this verse to be a clear indication of Christ having expiated and satisfied divine justice for the sins of every single human being. However, if you take the logic of the passage alone with the connection between propitiation and advocacy, this reading raises quite serious issues. We have noted that the sacrifice and intercession go together. So if Christ has propitiated the sins for every single person that has ever lived, he also advocates on their behalf. And hell on this account would be an empty place or God would be unjust. This consideration alone should cause pause for any that wish to understand the whole world here as referring to every single created human being. Additionally, it is a poor assumption to jump to the conclusion that the apostle has every single human being in mind by using or appealing to the whole world. It would be beyond our scope now to do a study of the use of the word world in the New Testament, but we find, we would find that the word world means quite a number of things, highly dependent upon the context. And we would be hard-pressed to find a place where it refers to world and it means every single human being that has existed. But more to our point and to declare positively to our comfort and our aid what the apostle here suggests, as it so often appears in the New Testament, concerns the universality of Christ, the Redeemer's work extending beyond the Jews. And to help us see this, we may consider two items related to John. The first relates to John's field of ministry. Remember that the Apostle John was numbered among James and Peter as pillars of the church in the church of Jerusalem. John with James and Peter are said to have, in Galatians, to perceive the grace that was given unto Paul, and thereby gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that they both should go unto the heathen, and John with the rest unto the circumcision, that is the Jews. His field of ministry was to continue to mainly be preoccupied among the Jews. The second item concerns something similar and parallel to our text in John chapter 11, where Caiaphas, the high priest, spake, saying, It is expedient for us, Jews, that is, that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And then the inspired writer, John, informs us, And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but for also, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. That is, he should die for the whole world. What world? The children of God scattered abroad, as Peter will say in his Pentecost sermon, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. What then? Does this have to do with the advocacy of Christ? Believer, understand by this that the interceding work of Jesus Christ today in heaven, depending upon his completed work of propitiation, is certain and effectual. Christ is not at the right hand of the Father, wondering, anxious if all those he died for will come. They will. He has died for them, will revive them, by his spirit in due time. His intercession is for them, not just for us. Speaking of his disciples 
To his father, Jesus said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. The work of Christ, heavenly advocacy congregation, carries on unto completion. There are no technical difficulties along the way. His prayers and intercession in heaven is constant, continual, powerful, effectual, and certain. His prayers will attain what is appealed for. The Father will give unto his Son, our righteous advocate, on account of his blood, his heart's desire. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, Isaiah the prophet will say. His knowledge will justify many bearing their iniquities. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also the sins of the whole world. O Christian, look away with that saving glance from the sinful infirmities by which you are discouraged and thereby brought near to despair. Look away from them and look to Jesus Christ with that saving look of repose and trust upon him and his righteousness. The righteous one in heaven at the Father's right hand in whom we are all alone directed to look for salvation through. He is able to save them to the uttermost. It's the words of Hebrews 7. That come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Oh, but you might say, but what if I'm not truly one of his? Jesus says, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come. Come, believer. Come unto Christ and be strengthened with joy and grace to walk in new obedience. As you think upon and call upon and dwell upon your advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for your sins. And come, you who are sinners, repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is alone the propitiation of anyone's sins and is the alone name given under heaven which we are to be saved from the wrath and curse of God from. With that congregation, I ask you to rise and we'll pray together. Our Father in heaven, what wonderful news it is to us that we have an advocate that thou hast given Lord. oh lord it was not as though uh, pulled from the teeth from uh, from thee O oh lord but thou hast provided him in thy love an advocate thy very own son to bring together what is most needful O oh lord for us and what is most glorifying O oh lord to thy name grant us O oh lord to actively glorify thee the remainder of this day and this time by looking unto Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, that we may not, O Lord, look within for our hope and consolation, but look unto him who is the righteous one. It is in his name we pray. Amen.